Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Living History. It's great to be here again, and we are joined by someone who I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from. He's been on the show several times before. He does another podcast, which is Pete and Gary's Military History, which we love here as well. It's our sister podcast. He knows everything there is to know about military history, and we've got him on to talk about a very specific and really interesting topic. I know this is going to be a very popular podcast. We're talking basically about uh, tank crews during the Second World War. Joining me from London is historian Peter Hart. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. We like to think of ourselves as your brother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. The, ge- the gender neutral twins we are. So, all right. But, um, but uh, it's been great, mate. We should, I mean, the podcast has been fantastic. We've been doing it for a couple of years now with your chum, Gary Bain. And, geez, you've covered some interesting topics that topics I didn't even think could, uh, could fill a 10 minute <laughs> podcast. You've managed to wrap it on for an hour about It's uh, quite a skill. Well, it, 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 we've learnt a lot because, of course, sometimes we have to step outside our own uh, our own knowledge. People will say we don't know much about anything, but um, I found things like the Waterloo really opened up Waterloo uh, podcasts. I think we've done three or four of them now, uh, and the ones on uh, something I share with you: the inability to say Isn Werner. <laughs> I remember listening is that to your Luana, as in the British battlefield. Yeah, <laughs> yes, the Zulu wars. Listening. Just say the Zulu wars. Yeah. Zulu wars. Yeah, and that they've opened up great interests for me. And uh, with military history, it, it's good to get outside of of your of just the very small things you do. And in a way, you see the Second World War and Burning Steel, the other books I've done on the Second World War. They're stepping out. My, my, the First World War, the Great War, is my my main thing, as you know. So uh, it's good to get out and about <laughs> well it's it's fascinating to hear you say that because i know that is your backstory you and i have it's been a lot of beers under the bridge that you and i've spent together over oh. the years but uh <laughs> um I, I would say lately people that are recent converts to the peter hart military history experience would probably know you as a second world war guy because the last the volume of work that you've done recently has been very second world war focused hasn't it yeah, it's, what it does is it sort of reflects my career at the War Museum because I started on the Great War, and that's what I am. I'm a Great War historian. But then because of work, my job interviewing veterans, the First World War veterans had gone, and so I was doing it for, for 20, 30 years. I did nothing but Second World War, Korean War veterans. And those Second World War veterans I did in a way that, that by, by concentrating on a specific unit, 
it sort of opened the way to, to doing a series of podcasts. For instance, the, we did one on the 2nd Royal Norfolk Regiment. We did a whole series of interviews to them, 50-odd. No, 50-odd's the number we normally do. And and then that moved on to the uh, – the, uh, the, um, Whoever they were, South Nottas. South Nottas, yeah. What a memory I have. <laughs> and then, and then, and then the uh, the, the second Fife and Forfa Yeomanry, uh, which is the sub the, the subject of Burning Steel, which was the the book that came out recently about them. I should and say, the, I've got, I do have a copy of that right oh, here. It is a great. I can read, see it's so. really well thumbed. It is. It's almost pristine. No, I, it's, this is a topic that we have, you know, from various angles have approached recently because you're in the middle of a fantastic um, series of podcasts on this topic. Um, you know, it's, it, it reflects the great work that you did that we're all indebted to you for, the great work you and the other oral historians at the Imperial War Museum. And this podcast is going to be a chat loosely based on the fact you've got this fantastic new book out, Burning Steel, and to talk about the tankers in the Second World War, but also to talk about these things that we love nattering about when we're in the pub, which is the importance of oral history, you know, what, what's happening with history at the moment. You mentioned the, the other two projects that you worked on um, in terms of the South Knots Hussars and the Royal Norfolk Regiment. So you did an artillery one with the South Knots Hussars infantry with the Royal Norfolk Regiment and now the tank crews. Just give us an ex- just give us a little bit of an overview because you said that this is slightly different to the way you did some great war stuff. I mean, give us an overview of this of this concept of interviewing several people from the same unit and the way that that tells a story. Well, that that, that all comes from we tried to do it in the first world war. Um but <laughs> That was in the uh, 1980s. And to be honest, you'd get one person from the 7th Battalion, Northumberland Regiment, Northumberland Fusiliers. You'd get a couple from, the, say, the 1st, 8th Durham Light Infantry. And one of those would be good and one wouldn't. And you were lucky if you get those odds. So we, when we started with the Second World War, I had the, we had an interviewer called Conrad Wood who just interviewed hundreds of people. He would do three or four... Um, interviews uh sorry uh, sort of two hour interviews at most and it was basically what's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you and it would be the 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 big war stories uh you know that their big war story and that would be fundamentally what it was whereas i was doing a completely different thing which was i was doing uh, could you tell me when and where you were born uh, a bit about their background growing up um uh what jobs they had, how they joined the army, how they got into the unit, what their reception was in the unit, how they were trained, which covers all the how this bangy thing works and that bangy thing, how or how you drive a tank, you know, the tiller. I think that's a technical term, isn't it? Bangy things. Yeah, bang, bang for guns. Yeah, sorry, I, I do use a lot of obtuse. Uh, we don't. We don't uh, want to fly over people's heads, Pete. We might want to need to dumb it down with the jargon <laughs> a little bit. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep right. Uh, but but. Um, so so and and uh, what what we discovered was that if I do sort of fifty sixty people from a unit, then of that if you sort of forty of them will be good, ten won't be so good. That's just human nature. Um, some people's memories go quicker than others. Some people don't particularly cooperate as well. They just don't want to. And what you get is. You get them all. They're all in the same unit. So anything that happens is happening to them all. And I always, I always use the same analogy. But the people have probably seen me before. If you hold your hand up, there's there's gaps between them, right? So if you interview two people, there's a lot less gaps. Now imagine fifty hands. I only have two. 
Um, if you imagine 50 hands, you can see that there's there's not going to be things missed out. You're going to get a complete uh, uh, picture. And everybody's talking about the same thing. So instead of talking about generic officers, you're talking about a specific officer. And people, there'll be outliers. There'll be people who say, oh, I bloody hated him. Oh, he's the best officer that ever lived. And then there'll be people who say, well, he was pretty good. You know, he had a couple of faults. He didn't like Englishmen. That's uh, quite a common thing in the five four. Uh, partly because we can't pronounce Forfa. Uh, and uh, and um, they, um, you, you, so you get the outliers. But what you do get is you get, so if there's an attack, and, and like, for instance, I always remember the 18th of July when they, uh, Operation Goodwill. They're all talking about the same things. You've got people, and people t- can see each other's tanks, and people are actually talking about the same thing. Now, that, 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 so that means you get a real picture. And, and often, uh, if you haven't done this, it's all preparatory work. And people say, Oh, I, when did you do this? Well, I did it in the very late 90s. Uh, and uh, that's how – and then I wrote the book, well, about, about three years ago, I suppose. Uh, I can't remember. I wrote, uh, and that's when you do it. Um, you, you, you're sort of using that work. And then to that you add uh, the war diary, of course. That's to keep people in line because if I asked you what date you met me, you wouldn't know. It would obviously it'd be a memorable day for you, and you'll remember it was in a bar in Canberra. <laughs> I, uh, I remember the day well. I couldn't tell you what date it was, but yeah, the, day, the event so, is burned in my memory. So you have a war diary that gives you – so you can't – you know, when somebody – some old fella says, oh, I can't, I can't remember what date something happens, you can look it up in the war diary, which is – although you don't entirely trust war diaries, dates are pretty accurate on. Um, and you get this um, – you then have uh, so some people have left personal experience accounts, which are in the libraries, uh, with the, with the 5 fires, as I call them, I'm afraid. Uh, then there's a chap called uh, Steele, uh, Brownlee Steele, Steele Brownlee, rather. Uh, William Steele Brownlee, but he never used his first name. And he left a brilliant account, which was in the War Museum. And then, uh, because of COVID, I couldn't get at it. But a chap called Rob Stout, thank you, Rob, sent it me. And uh, that was it. that was another invaluable. And what you have is you have these che- you need checkpoints. You can't just trust oral history. If I said to you, I got up at five o'clock this morning. Do you know it's true or not? How, how do you know? And and if, if it was 50 years time, definitely. How do you know? Uh, well, you'll be dead. So will I. But, you know, the, the point <laughs> remains that it, you need things to check things. And, and, I, and I've always felt that. There's no such thing as, as objective historical truth, but you can get a balance of probability, and that's what I search for. If something is unbelievable, it's probably not true, is one of my golden rules. Uh, it's why I'm sceptical about first certain First World War aces claims, uh, that kind of thing. I'm not going to name them, um, but I uh, <laughs> don't want any Canadians <laughs> on my back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean. Um it, you you do you disregard if something's unbelievable or or, or fanciful or o- over embroidered. Um, for instance, I I I'm always suspicious of people who remember what people said. Uh, Look out," said Ted as a shell burst. You know, I, I can't remember what I said yesterday. Can you? Um, and you're a professional broadcaster as opposed to a strolling <laughs> idiot like myself. So, um, <laughs> well, so I think one of us these... has a has a has a book out at the moment, Pete. So I think that uh, you've got that a book out. Up. You've got a book oh, out I, on that escape. 
<laughs> I do indeed. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for the plug. Cower Breakout coming out yeah, uh, next week, actually. It's great. Yeah, um, it's uh, coming this, soon. Though. We should get on to talking specifically about oh, the topic, sorry. but I just, you know, that I always get distracted by it's been such a fascinating world. I'm the very world. distracted. <laughs> that is very true. I, I do always get distracted by you, Pete, but also I get distracted by the subject of oral history with war veterans. Yeah. Mostly because I didn't get to do very much of it because I came to this. It, it might not be obvious, but I'm considerably younger than you, and so I didn't get, particularly with the First World War, which is my great passion, I only got to meet a handful of veterans and certainly didn't have the opportunity to sit down and interview them as you did. When, when you're doing something like this with the with the uh, the, the tank crews in World War II, um, are you uh, steering the conversation? Did you do, do you, for example, when you did these interviews, did you talk to one veteran who said an extraordinary thing happened to me on the 26th of September 1944, hypothetically? And then you're going, wow, I really want to flesh that out. So I'll find out what other people witnessed at the same thing. Are you are you sort of building a tapestry yourself about what went on or are you just letting them talk and tell their stories? No, very much. Well, you, I always used to call it like that, keeping people on course, which uh, you desperately try and do with me. And, and, and you just did a, a gear shift there. And that's what we do. So uh, if there's something big happens, I'll make a note of it. And if I, And when I interview other people, I'll ask... I'll ask them about the same thing. Um, I try not to tell people what happened. You have to be really careful because if you lead them too much, then then you'll get it, it, they'll people. The thing about people who are interview you're interviewing is they want to please you. <clears throat> They're little old men. They often haven't spoken to anyone quite recently, or if they have, it's only been the wife. Um, <laughs> and 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 they 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 they're keen to be. So if you say, I always just say, uh, uh, first of all, war analogy, of course, with me. Uh, it must have been cold in the trenches. You'll get a typical answer. Yes, yes, it was cold. Yes, cold, freezing. I was never cold, though. And it's only the last one, because if they're from the north of England, obviously Scotland's different. For some reason, they get cold again. But you get used to something, and it, they've got the, the, the fires. Got... Do you see what I mean? And if you've led them, you get you get contradictory answers, and often it's the last answer that will be what they really think. The other thing, the whole thing with oral history is you always have to be aware that if you treat it as old men rambling on, like I'm old now, I'm the same age as the people I was interviewing uh, in the 1990s, uh, 67. And um, people are in good condition when they're 67. But on the other hand, if you think of it as old men rambling on with points of extreme interest, you 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 don't get this sort of calling it testimony. I'm glad you haven't used the word testimony because my eyebrow would have gone up. Because um, <laughs> testimony gives it the idea that it's some sort of semi-religious legal. This is the truth. We must all bow before this veteran who hath spoken, and that's not what it is. They're just people like anybody who writes down a diary or or, or or writes a personal experience account. You have to treat it as the evidence and look at it and analyze it properly as a historian. So all history is part of the all arms battle to use again the First World War analogy. I told you First World War is my thing. I like what uh, you did there, Pete. Very good. Yeah. But you use all things. So if you've got pictures, you know, somebody says every tank's on fire and there's a picture of the battlefield and they're not on fire. You you've got to balance in your head what 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 were the different sources of evidence? Picture will probably from be from a different day. You never know, but you do look at all the evidence: the war diary, personal experience accounts, everything, and oral history slots between them. Burning Steel and my other book, Cl- at Close Range, other books 
are often mainly oral history. And there it's different. What you're doing is making sure it's as right as it can be. But then the beauty is you get the people telling their story in a way that you and I can't tell for them. So what's it like to be in a Sherman, the, uh, the, the Ronson, Light's first time, uh, the Tommy Cooker? What's it like to be in a Sherman? Um, how do you feel rumbling into action? How do you feel? What does it smell like? Uh, and not just the fact that the, 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 the bloke steering the thing is farted. And that I mean, what about all the other smells, uh, the, 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 the fuel and the cordite, everything else? Um, what, what do your personal morale like? Because we get posh words for, are you scared, bloody rigid? Um, the answer is usually yes. Um, it, it's just you get that picture. And then when something happens, it's a me- something happens and they describe it. You can, t- I remember looking at them and you could see them reacting. Uh, they could almost relive it in front of you and, 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 and the panic and getting out of the tank. And it's so important. how do you get out? Can't, we're on soft ground. Can't get through the bottom. Uh, I'll have to go through the top. Uh, they're in the bloody way. Get out the bloody way. Cause they know it's going to catch fire. It doesn't always catch fire immediately. And most of them get out all right. So they get out. What happens when they get out, Matt? They're on a battlefield. What's on a battlefield? Well, machine guns, hand grenades. So when you get a lot of the casualties in tank warfare is people, is escaped crews. A lot of the uh, fife and four for yeomanry casualties uh, at, at Goodwood were when they, they got back and they were at the, you know, the glider field at Ranfield. You've, you've obviously been there. Yeah, um, that is where um, uh, they were bombed by the bloody Germans. No disrespect to Germans. They're all lovely now. But they always do what you don't want them to do. And and, and they bombed them. And a lot of them were killed there. So for me, that's and, – and you get these interreacting stories. And actually, the Ranville bit's really exciting. Some of them are in the glider. One of them burnt to death in a glider that caught fire. That, that they were just sleeping there. Uh, another one was wounded in the arse. Because he was getting underneath the vehicle, <laughs> and a bit of uh, of the bomb hit him in the eye. Do you see what I mean? It's it, it. And then you have the stories of the men taken away in the ambulances. And that, I'm using that as a, it's an unknown thing. The bombing of Randver, uh, the glider field. Uh, it's it's not particularly well known, and it comes out in oral history because that's what they remember. But for me, that, that's what it, I found the book incredibly exciting, very moving at times. Uh, um, Charlie Workman, who's someone I still remember interviewing in Musselburg, in, in far off near Edinburgh, and uh, he um, he remembered seeing this officer, one of his friends, uh, trying that his tank was hit, and he tried that it had taken his legs off the shell, it hit in the turret, and a lot of them lost their legs when that happened, and he tries to climb out, the tank now catches fire, and then he just sees him fall back into the tent tank. Uh, I, I find that horrendous. Um, there's no joking on on the podcast. We often have to make it clear before a podcast whether it's going to be a ha ha Pete and Gary or it's going to be a fairly serious affair. And there's nothing funny about uh, about warfare generally. Uh, we it's training that's funny. Um, Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But the other thing is about uh, my sort of book is I believe that if you don't understand the training, you don't understand how people react in action. You ask any soldier, they'll tell you that you're a civilian unless you're trained. You can put a uniform on, but if you've not been trained and, and, and properly trained, then when the shit hits the fan, you're going to fail. Almost certainly, unless you're a natural soldier, which barely exists. Uh, you need, I mean, the noise, Matt, not just the tank noise, but the noise of the battlefield, that apparently <coughs> would be enough to scare people like me and you. We're, we're, you've never served in anything, I don't think. Not, not in the <laughs> Boy Scouts. <laughs> Although, I have to beware people are serving the Boy Scouts too closely. Um, but uh, apparently just the noise is enough. Uh, never mind the people dying left you know, and, and other tanks. Oh. So for me, that's the, it was a very, very ec- exciting, the wrong word, a dramatic book. Because um, I don't want people to think I get a thrill out of the horror of it, because I don't. I just find it horrible. But it's somehow one of the things is. Can I make a point? Please do. Even when you are only a mere lad of about thirty-two, uh, whereas I'm twice your age. But when you were young, everyone you met, Matt, was every authority figure was a Second World War veteran. I think even for you that would be true. Your headmaster. Yeah, for me, every teacher at my school had was either very young, I three or four years younger than older than me, you know, or they'd been in the Second World War. Bocco Kelly, uh, the deputy head, the headmaster, most of the senior teachers. Uh, if you went to the pub, the landlord was a veteran. Uh, on the bus, the bus driver was a veteran. If you walk down the streets, everyone you saw, my father, of course, all my uncles, they were all Second World War veterans. And they were everywhere. And no one thought anything of them. And one of the reasons I love the books I write is I'm bringing that generation sacrifice. I don't want to make it they didn't want to sacrifice anything. They're human beings. They just wanted to have a good time, go down the pub, drink, meet the missus, try not to meet the missus, meet some other people first, then meet the missus. Um, they just wanted a good life. But a lot of them had to, some made the ultimate sacrifice, but a lot of the rest of them are badly wounded or they're mentally affected or, 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 or they just have six years of their life taken from them. Now, at our age, and I do include you in this, six years isn't much. Do you know what I mean? It, but when you're 18, 18 to 24, that is your life. And, and you spend that with people trying to kill you. And I think that the sacrifice of that generation, the sacrifice of those second five and four five Yomi and all the other men who served in whatever needs to be recognized. And one of the best ways of recognizing it was what the War Museum did, record as many of them as possible, and then, in my case, turn that into a book that that gives them their voice. 
There are only two that I'm aware of uh, of the veterans left alive. Jeff Hayward, who I'm still in touch with, and a guy called Harold Wilson, which is slightly <laughs> peculiar for uh, people in my country. Uh, but, wow, um, all of the rest of the people in that book are dead. And the people they're talking about are dead. And again, it's a slightly sentimental thing. But when they talk about someone who died, I like the fact that their name is remembered, that that, that their lives are given. Somehow just what they did is remembered. So there's me being more sentimental than usual, I suppose. But these books, the the, At Close Range, uh, um, this one, (laughs) Burning Sausages, as I often call it, uh, Burning Steel, (laughs) And I'm working on one of the 16th Durham Light Infantry, an ordinary infantry regiment. And they're, they're, to me, it's bringing those veterans back to life. It's, it's bringing their experiences and it's making us all think about how very different their lives are from ours. I don't know what you think. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the interesting thing for me, Pete, is that you have spent a lot of time talking to these veterans. But when you compile it into a book, there must be things that surprise you and shock you. I mean, when you were putting Burning Steel together, what were the elements of it that, that there must have been times when you just went, wow, that, that's, that's an extraordinary story that's just been revealed. Can you remember moments or, or key parts of the book that really, really shocked you or really surprised you? Uh, some of them I almost suppressed. They're in the book. Uh, one of the things was, uh, was um, uh, Charlie Workman again. He was very... Uh, uh, he he told a story about how they got out of the tank. They got a tank got caught fire, got hit and caught fire, and they get out. And he sort of comes to on the grass because he's sort of in a panic, and he sort of, he looks around and there's this sort of burning raggy thing next to him, and he sort of looks at it. And then the the voice comes from just a voice comes from it saying, "Shoot me, sir." And um, yeah, and I remembered this story. What I hadn't realised was just just the impact it would have on me when I heard it again. Because I listen to everything again. Sometimes at fast speed, you know, on computers, you can speed up voices. Now I'd slow down to bits I was going to use in the book. But when I, I mean, and, and, and he, he says, uh, I couldn't shoot him. And, and thank God the voice tailed away and he died. And, and then you're thinking, of, you're thinking, thank God he's dead. Uh, but that's the state it was. So the, the, and stories like that, I'm not going to go into any more because, again, it's slightly morbid. But that sort of thing stays with you and that shocks you. Uh, it's so it's so awful, um, and, and it, it, that that sort of thing does does make its mark on you. It, it, it was a sort of renewed shock. I re- and when I heard it, I remembered sitting opposite him, almost with my mouth up and going, "Jesus wept." I, I, I'm not sure I want to hear this. Uh, it was a lovely. That's what I. It's what I think is so important about the, this work, Pete, that you do, and what gets revealed in the books in particular, because you've done great work in oral history, but it requires us to do a lot of work to access it, to go and listen to hours and hours of, of interviews. That's why the books are so compelling that you're bringing that story together in a cohesive way. But the thing I've always liked about it is it adds an extra dimension as well. I think that now that the veterans are nearly all gone, the First World War ones are all gone and the Second World War ones are sadly following, um, there's a danger. I, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Australia there's this danger that they become two-dimensional Every Aussie bloke just wanted to kiss his girlfriend goodbye and ride down on a horse to the nearest enlistment station and head off and do his bit for king and country. And, and those ele- some of those elements are true. I'm not saying that they're not, but there's a risk that that becomes the entire story. 
And what it, I what I always come back to with oral history, something we've talked about before on this podcast when we've talked about oral history, we've talked about it before, that they say things in oral history that they don't say in a letter home or that they don't put in their diary or they certainly don't say when they meet the Queen to get a medal pinned on their chest. And it's important stuff. It's, it's important. Even those ghastly stories, we don't want to dwell on them too much as the whole story, but it's important we know them. It's important we understand what people went through when we talk about why it's important to remember. I mean, that, that must, must be your bread and butter every day with speaking to these veterans. It is, and and it, you've you've you put you hit the they're ordinary people doing extraordinary things, uh, and by extraordinary things I just mean giving up six years of their life. That's that, that's the the start point, but above that is the the things they have to do, the skills they learn. Uh, it's all it's all amazing stuff, and and all history does bring. I, I use the example of uh, Gallipoli. We both of us. Well, that's my favourite topic and and Gallipoli and we all know what I'm going to say and it's dysentery not mentioned much in the letters home to mum not mentioned at all in letters home to, do you write to your girlfriend dear darling I've shat myself 14 times today used hand and some some leaves uh to, to wipe my ass with uh, ass also red raw did you write that home to your mum thing even to your dad you're probably just going to say a bit of the old tummy trouble and i remember a book once about it was about palestine boasted it wouldn't use any oral history or or non-contemporary material i.e., letters and diaries of the time result the word dysentery doesn't appear in the index <laughs> yet you and i know there's plenty of dysentery in palestine uh, the Palestine campaign. Well, in Gallipoli, oral history, the first thing that's in every interview is people talking about upset tummies and dysentery. That's and what, what and they what remember. Effect, sorry to jump in there, Pete, but we can't underestimate the effect that had on these campaigns. Oh, the I'm entire sorry. army was debilitated at times because everyone had dysentery and they were so weak they could barely raise their rifle, let alone fight. This had a, a profound effect on the way battles were fought in all of these campaigns. And you're right. If you're not talking about it, you're overlooking one of the key components of the way that army operated. Look Look at the, uh, is it 4th Brigade? Advance uh, round uh, through Taylor's Gap, bit of an error of that, and up, uh, up to uh, Hill 971. Uh, uh, blamed on Monash sometimes by people who, who have got it in for Monash? I, I don't come. To, I mean, he may didn't do brilliantly that night, but the real point is that brigade was riddled with dysentery, and it's just. I mean, I, I couldn't do that if I had an upset dummy. Never mind dysentery. Dysentery is different from an upset dummy. It's not five pints of beer and, a, and an unwise curry or doner kebab from a dodgy store. It isn't. It is dysentery, where you will die if you don't get treatment. Um, and and at Gallipoli, the, the the truth is that uh, in the, in the desert in the Second World War, if you if you got jaundice, you'd be evacuated as sick. At Gallipoli, jaundice just gave you a spot of colour in your face because you were dysentery, you had paratyphoid, and eventually they'd get off when they got uh, soldier's heart, which was disordered action of the heart. That's what you find out from oral history. <coughs> I used to love the old boys who said, I was evacuated from Gallipoli with disordered action. Oh, he's still going strong 60 years later. Oh. <laughs> You'd see they died two days later. No, that's an exaggeration. But the, the, the point, but that's oral history for you. And, 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 and again, uh, the, the, bringing it back, to, I keep, sorry, it's me that keeps leading us away, but burning steel, this is tank warfare. This is what it's like told by the men itself. And uh, although it's going through a filter, 
the filter being me, I've tried to be fair to the lads and and the the veterans who've read it. Uh, certainly, Jeff Haywood and and I believe Harold Wilson have liked it because they they recognise it as being true to life. Uh, I haven't put words in their mouth. Um, I've only edited words out, so I don't try and make it a better story. I just try and I cut things, but I don't add things. I think is the way to put it, and. I think it reflects what happens as best as any anywhere. I, I think if you want to know about tank warfare, what it was like to be in a Sherman, then I think the lads and I suppose me have done a, a better job here than than I than, than I could have dreamt of when I started. Uh, you know the interviews because that, that's the ultimate process. Interviews is part of it. It's not just the writing. It was a hell of a war they went through, wasn't it? These these guys in in the tanks. I mean, I, I've read your other books as well, and and it's not to take anything away from the infantry and the artillery and guys that flew planes or on ships or anything else. But geez, I tell you what, there's something about there's a special type of bravery when you go and climb into that metal monster and, and head off and, and face the shell fire on a battlefield, isn't there, mate? There is, and if you ask the infantry, they hate tanks. They don't they don't like them being near them because they attract artillery fire. Of course they do. Artillery is the enemy of the tank. Um, and 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 when they're wounded, they, 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 I, there's a couple of stories in the book where they wouldn't go in the tank. They would not get in the tank. They were put on the back. Uh, they just wouldn't get in it. Uh, they, they were screaming, scared of being caught, trapped if it got hit. If the tank got hit, uh, and uh, infantry don't like tanks. Uh, I think there is a special sort of courage. I have to say, whoops! I have to say that I think infantry are the people who suffer the most in 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 warfare. But then you might say, is that because you're working on the 16th Durham Light Infantry? And I suspect that all I'm doing at the moment is 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 dealing with infantry accounts. But in the end, they have to take the ground and hold the ground, and they're attacked by tanks, artillery, and other bloody infantry. So they do have a fairly bad time. Uh, well, that's what also, I, I learned that. They don't go back. Lo- go on, Pete. They, they don't go back to lager up like the tanks do at night. <laughs> they stay there. I learned- I learned that many years ago from tank crews that tanks are fantastic at capturing ground and absolutely bloody awful at holding it. So, they can't uh, hold so that's it. when they that's when they do rely on their their, their friends in the infantry to come and uh, come I'm and sure help them out. Sure, they're so friendly. But of course, infantry <laughs> never ever, as we all know from the podcast, infantry never ever complain. They merely observe, Matt. They're, they observe a lot. <laughs> the, the podcast episodes are something. I mean, we. We've talked about the general nature of the book here, and in in half an hour on, on this podcast, we obviously yeah. can't uh, we can't break down a, a multi hundred page book. But you are doing that in your series of podcasts with Gary Bain, and I mean, are you finding when you're when you're doing those podcasts, are you simply summarizing the bits that you did in the book, or are you finding new directions and new angles? And I mean, Gary's always adding new angles that that take me by surprise. Yeah, well, that's, um, it, it's that's... been a, it's been a, a really interesting exploration hearing those special episodes. Uh, on on this uh, this subject of tank warfare, they're essentially based on chapters of the book, which have to be much shortened. Which is that's my job, and then Gary adds the new angles, which I haven't thought about. He talk, often, sometimes he brings <coughs> sometimes he brings in his own experience because he actually served in the army, very undistinguished career, and uh, he was a private for no less than six times. I think been promoted, broken for bad conduct, and the rest of it. But the, he, and then he rose to be. Uh, the financial director of transport for london so there you go uh the army missed him there well they didn't they had him right actually but he, he changed after that but gary gary looks at things with a different eye from 
from from what I do, and and that helps a lot. Uh, but but um, and and when they're not scripted, we have notes. I'm sure you have notes when you do your podcast with P- Peter Peter Smith, good friend of mine. Very camp Royal Marine. I'd never heard of a camp Royal Marine before. <laughs> Give me my regards. <laughs> but, uh, I will indeed. Oh, he's a great bloke. And uh, but I'm sure you have notes, but that you don't read them. We don't read ours. We read the quotes. We have. The trouble is, we're both difficult people. Oh, you, you won't believe this, Matt, that I'm difficult. But uh, the more people complain about accents, the more we do them. And, <laughs> and I don't know That's why. One of that my is. favorite things, the feedback we get is, "Why do you idiots continue with your terrible accents?" And I'm like, "Why? Why? Please don't say that. You know, you're only encouraging them." We don't do them during the battle scenes. We absolutely don't. Uh, but. Do you know it just amuses us while we do? I mean, we have to do a podcast a week, and it keeps us happy. And without it, there probably wouldn't be a podcast because because it amuses us. And I sit opposite Gary when he's doing his Germans, which always turn out to be a gay Van- Manfred von Richthofen. <laughs> and, and you just think, what? what? And when Blucher turned out to be a gay Manfred von Richthofen, there was a howl of complaint from the punters. And so after that, he was a uh, more butch Manfred von Richthofen, and and, and uh, you know, I I I had a I, the one that caused most complaints that I fondly remember was the Colonel of the uh, Second Royal Norfolk, was a chap called Robert Scott, and he was larger than life. He was a huge, six foot four, which was tall then. It's not tall now. Huge monster of a man who never did anything without shouting and you know bawling and and he used to fire off a sawn off three hundred three rifle just behind people's ears to test their battle readiness. <laughs> All this sort of and I thought what I and I thought should I use my blood knock which causes most complaints because Americans can't understand it. I tell you this, I guess on the hands of heart. And, <laughs> and I thought, no, no, I'll do a Norfolk. I can't do a Norfolk. He's from Norfolk, I think, Robert Scott. So I, went, I, I settled for Cornish Pirate. <laughs> and the number of complaints we got. Oh, I just did it more. But uh, but uh, do you know what? There's not For a start, neither of us can do a proper Scottish. So all you'll get on the five and four fires, aye, before we start a quote, because we neither of us can do a proper Scottish accent, despite... Both of us, actually, most of our ancestors being Scottish, as I presume yours are. Indeed. All four of my grandparents are Scottish. Um, that's why they're so miserable, I think. <laughs> and and, uh, and Gary's even more Scottish, if you know what I mean. He's, uh, so, uh, but, uh, so, and also, because the tank stuff, sometimes it's because we know what's going to happen. So we laid off the accents there because... Uh, but they've been coming back recently in other topics. So there you go. Hey, I'm, glad you're um, getting, I'm glad you're getting complex. Always the accents. I, I love it. Actually, the one I love the most is whenever you do someone who's just a bit posh, some posh officer or something like that, and your posh accent comes. That's that's actually my favourite. Your Australian's not too bad, so we don't get many complaints about the Australian. But, my uh, Australian's but terrible. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. <laughs> Perfect. Jeez, it's like it's like uh, every cliche. It's, it's like you're from Melbourne, mate. <laughs> you hate um, being from Melbourne. You told me. <laughs> it's a bit more trouble. Let, let the rec- let the record show, <laughs> um, mate. It's always a pleasure to catch up. We haven't we have obviously haven't broken down the history very much, but it was not what I wanted to do on this podcast. No. I wanted to talk about 
um, you know, if people want the the history of what is it a, a compelling story, they can read the book and listen to the podcast. But it, it's a fascinating story, and it takes a Peter Hart to tell it. Um, and you know, it's it's. I think a lot of us listening to this or watching this video are excited. There's a new Peter Hart book coming out because you do it in a very special way. And I'll uh, I'll stop kissing your ass now, mate, because I know it's not what you like. But it but it is deserved. It is deserved praise. It is deserved praise, mate. That um the the way you do it, it's it's you 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 don't see it, but it is a very important contribution that the work that you've done with oral history, and it's a great book. Um, the book is Burning Steel. Ooh. by Peter Hart. Uh, the podcast, Pete and Gary's Military History, which we enjoy putting out every week. Check it out as well. And the special dedicated episodes off the back of the book are something special as well. Mate, what's coming up? You said you've got the new book you're working on now. Well, I'm Tell us, what, on... what are the new projects in Peter Hart's life? Well, uh, uh, I and Gary have a book called, coming out called Laugh or Cry, uh, The British Soldier on the Western Front, 1914-18, which, which I really enjoyed writing with Gary. This is our first joint book, and it was a joint process. Uh, and um, I, I couldn't have done it without him. I really couldn't. And basically, it's looking at how soldiers kept going. And you and I both know that soldiers use humour. And I, I, it's every sort of humour. There's situationalist stuff long before Monty Python. There's there's, uh, there's sarcasm. That I mean, the, 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 the voice of the sergeant talking to a young, inexperienced officer is something to behold, or a fussy major. Uh, there's uh, this sort of abuse, and I've always really enjoyed abuse, uh, and 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 just, um, but basically they're trying to keep going in circumstances where any normal person couldn't, and they, but they have to, and they are normal, and so they reach, humour is a large part of it, and some of the black humour is appalling, but we put it in the book anyway, and not for cheap laughs. The book isn't a, a, a book of cheap laughs. I think you read an early version of it or saw an early version. Um, so that's very exciting. That's coming out in November this year. And the other book I'm writing on my own, because Gary, otherwise Gary would get all my money, uh, is uh, on, the, on the 16th Durham Light Infantry, which has just been, uh, again, an eye-opener of what the infantry have to go through. They fought through North Africa with First Army and then uh, across into Italy back for a rest to uh, um, uh, Egypt, not Egypt, yeah, yeah, Egypt and Palestine, and then back into Italy and then on to Greece, which is an unusual thing. Again, personal experience. And I did those before I did the, uh, so they're younger. And my hero in that one is a chap called Ronald Elliott. And I looked it up and he was 65 when I interviewed him. Uh, and uh, I thought he was an old man then because I was about whatever I am, but, you know, but now I'm 67, I think, hmm. And but their voices are young and vigorous, and I th- and 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 that, well, they sound like we do. Um, they haven't got to that ninety-five-year-old, you know. They're uh, they're uh, they're young still. Well, they're not young, but their their voice hasn't gone. Um, we all saw Paul McCartney. Uh, I love Paul McCartney at Glastonbury. People keep going on and on that his voice is gone. The man's eighty. His voice is much better than my voice. I'm in a band as well. His voice is 10 times better than mine. But it's not the Paul McCartney when he was 50 or even 60. It's going a bit. He's, you know, And that's uh, one of the things about oral history. If you catch people young, you get a younger man. Because you have to remember that it, they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And, and, and that they, yet you're interviewing someone 60 to 100. You've got to remember that, that, that perspective. I'm rabbiting it's on. Just- no, you're not at all, Pete. It's why we have you on here. It's fantastic stuff. It's so the, the rabbiting is, you enjoy. <laughs> the rabbiting. It's the, it's the rabbits that we get you on for. But um, 
the current book is Burning Steel. Um, Laugh or Cry with Gary Bain is coming out. Uh, and do we know what the book on the Durham Light Infantry is going to be called yet, Pete? Uh, Footslogger. No imagination. Footslogger. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, so, well, so uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's coming out next year, obviously. It's got to be handed in in November. So it's a, you know it's a treadmill writing books. Uh, it, uh, that makes it sound like I don't enjoy doing it. But <clears throat> you start one, and then the moment you finish, you're on the next one, and you carry on that till you die. Hopefully well, I've got at least another 10 books in me. <laughs> mate, we look forward to all of them. And uh, this one, I think, you know, I've enjoyed all your books, but this one in particular um, is, is is a gripping account. So, um, mate, like always, a real pleasure having you on the program. Uh, and we Thanks, look forward Matt. to more books and more podcasts in the future. Peter Hart, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed it. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.